It's Thursday, May 27th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, which is called News Items. Today, we have an interview with Nicholas Eberstadt, who holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. A prolific writer, he frequently contributes to The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, and other publications. He's also the author of a lot of books. Uh, we, we can't count them all, many of them focusing on demographic issues. In our conversation, we talk about two of his essays. One, published in March of 2017, was entitled Our Miserable 21st Century. The other, just published in Foreign Affairs this week, was entitled America Hasn't Lost Its Demographic Advantage. We start with the misery first. So without further ado, here is my interview with Nick Eberstadt. Welcome to the podcast, Nick, and thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to start with a brief anecdote, which is I've been doing the News Items newsletter for five years now, and included in the newsletter are links to the various articles, essays, commentaries that are featured. And the most clicked link in five years of doing news items was your essay called Our Miserable 21st Century. So I wanted to ask you first about that, and then I thought we'd talk about your most recent piece for Foreign Affairs Magazine. Well, thanks for inviting me, John. It's great to have you. I can't tell you the number of people who called me and told me how impressed they were by that essay way back in March of 2017. And I thought it'd be a good idea just to get an update on it. So I wanted to start with an excerpt from the essay in which you said, we are witnessing an ominous and growing divergence between three trends that should ordinarily move in tandem, wealth, output, and employment. Depending on which of these three indicators you choose, America looks to be heading up, down, or more or less nowhere. Tell us first about wealth. Where is that pointing us to? Well, if we could just measure America by its wealth creation, we could end the show right now, John. We'd all go home and celebrate and pop the champagne. We've got the most extraordinary wealth creation engine in the United States that history has ever seen. We get a little bleary-eyed when we talk about billions and trillions and millions with the M's and the B's and the T's. But despite the crisis last year that's still underway, America's net private wealth is in excess of $100 trillion with a T dollars. It's an almost unimaginable amount of money. And if you divided it equally across the population, you'd be talking about north of a million dollars per notional family of four. Well, then let's end the podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are those two, those annoying other parts of it. Yeah. So that's the good news. And we'll look at output next. Tell us about that. Well, this is probably not a fair day to talk about long-term output since we're coming out of a world historical crisis. And America actually has rebounded from that crisis, I think, 
impressively rapidly. But if we take a a point the day before we all learned about what COVID-19 was, America's long-term growth rate in the 21st century is kind of shifted down a couple of gears from its historical norm from the end of the Second World War to the end of the 20th century. If we were on the previous path, we'd have a per capita output now-ish, or let's say right before the pandemic, that would have been more than 20% above where we are. And, you know, for most people, an increase or decrease in 20% of your income is kind of a big deal. What do you attribute that to? Well, I've got a slightly crackpot view on this. I may be a little bit of an economic renegade. I tend to think of wealth as being generated by human resources and business climate. The business climate unlocking the possibilities for releasing human potential and wealth. America's educational trends and business climate trends have been pretty mediocre in this century. For, let's say, the 2010 to right before the pandemic, that was a lost decade in terms of health improvement measured by life expectancy, basically zero health improvement for an entire decade. That tells you how tough the situation was. But even if you look at something where the U.S. used to really excel, we were the world's leader and fastest grower in mean years of schooling for the population. And that was one of our great competitive advantages. But for the last several decades, The U.S. pace of progress here has been about a third of what it was historically. And it's not because we've hit a ceiling. Other countries are surpassing us and continuing at more rapid rates than we're going at. Then there's the whole question about business climate. And I don't think that it's any secret anywhere that America's business climate isn't as auspicious as it was a decade or so ago. And that's not just a team blue or a team red thing. I think we see a a cumulative set of impediments, which are making it more difficult to unlock wealth from human beings. In the essay, you have a paragraph in which you say the abstract of inequality doesn't matter to a lot of ordinary Americans. The reality of economic insecurity does. How insecure are the workers, I guess, of the United States. What is your sense of the data there? Again, we're looking at things at a very peculiar time because we're coming out of a world historical crisis. And so I would be cheery to make generalizations about how things are from our current vantage point. If we look at, say, again, the 20 years up to the beginning of the pandemic, There were a number of things which occurred which are really pretty peculiar and troubling, I think. One of them has been the persistent failure of full employment for prime working age men right before the pandemic, at a point in the business cycle when people on Wall Street and people in Bloomberg News and people on uh, television seemed to be feeling pretty good about the economy. 25 to 50 four-year-old civilian men had about the same work rate, employment to population ratio, that they had tail end of the Great Depression. 
that doesn't sound really so good to me. <laughs> I don't think we can pop the champagne uh, open about that one. I think that speaks really to a continuing huge problem of American economy and society. You can also take a look at what happened with wealth generation. Remember I was saying that as a country, we were sloshing in money with wealth. Right. The engines worked fabulously well, fabulously well. It hasn't done so well for the bottom half of households. I think when I was writing that essay, the average inflation-adjusted net worth of households was a little bit lower than it had been at the end of the Cold War, which had happened a couple of decades before. If we were to do that today, I'd say that the average net worth of the bottom half of households is mm, 10%, 15% higher than it was 30 years ago. So the sign is good. It's positive rather than negative. But, you know, half a percent a year improvement in wealth for the bottom half of households in the United States, is that really what we're all happy about winning the Cold War for? And you, you have the phrase, the great American escalator being stuck. Yeah. Uh, that would be a fairly good data point for that argument, I would think. Sure. And there are all of these social problems, which are best and brightest don't seem to be entirely aware of. I mentioned two of them, and they're in a way kind of flip sides of the same coin. We have an enormous, invisible, effectively invisible population of ex-cons in the United States. Right. I mean, we talk about mass incarceration, and yes, there is mass incarceration. You know, we've got around 2 million people behind bars while we talk, but there are more than 10 times that many ex-cons in society at large. And we don't either know or seem terribly much to care what's happened to them. Now, we'll pay attention if they reoffend, but there are a lot of people who don't reoffend, and a lot of people who haven't uh, made it back into families, back into the economy, back in, really into society. That's a lot of people. That's, I mean, 20 plus million is a lot of people. And with invisible problems like that, we're missing a great deal about what's going on. The other problem like that that I'd mentioned is eviction. Our rental population, I think, is more insecure than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And the last time I looked, the median wealth of a rental household was a little over $2,000 total. Three out of eight homes in America are renting households. Run that by me again. Okay, so, you know, there's difference between the average and the median. Yes. So for homes that are renter homes, the 50% cutoff mark, I believe, the last data I saw was net worth of $2,200. And that's a lot of America. That That's one big emergency away from, you know, being cleaned out. And one bad thing happens and they have to go to the emergency room and they're done, right? You know, I learned economics way back when, or maybe I mislearned it. And when they were teaching it, they said, well, remember about life cycle and stuff. And this isn't just a life cycle problem. These aren't all PhDs out of the University of Wisconsin who accumulate a lot of student debt and are about to make a ton of money. A bunch of these people are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. 
and are, apart from whatever they may throw themselves on Uncle Sam for, they're on pretty thin ice, a lot thinner than we'd want in a successful system. What's happened in our country is real and is alarming, I think, and in a good world would elicit the empathy of fortunate people for those who are suffering or in hard shape. But I don't think that the dialogue we've heard entirely conforms to that. I think there's been an unfortunate amount of sort of enemy imaging in this instead of trying to figure out a formula for the United States that brings prosperity to all. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items. You know, I've been looking at this for a long time, the question being, can the country be stitched back together again, given the polarization and the fracturing of sort of the social mystic bonds of memory, I guess you would call it. Is that something that you worry about? Do you think, yes, eventually the country will stitch itself back together? Oh, of course I worry about it. We still have a deep and powerful common canon. And over the longer haul, I'm very optimistic. But I think Keynes had some phrase about the long term. The question is, what happens a little bit in the shorter term? And there are a lot of forces for anger and division and polarization in the United States. And the level of common trust seems to me to be much lower than at any time that I can remember. So the question is, how do we restore common trust? I think it's a doable proposition for sure, but it looks a little uphill at the moment. Where do you think we begin in the process of restoring common trust? What would that look like, I guess? Two things, and neither of these are economic or social or material things. First is being able to make a recognizable version of your opponent's argument to them. If you cannot say what they're talking about, if you cannot formulate that in a way that is recognizable to them, you cannot have a conversation or even really a debate that includes ideas. That requires an empathetic leap that is very untwitter friendly but we need to be able to go there if we're going to recognize that we even have a conversation to have with each other, people who disagree with each other. That, in a way, I think is easier than what I'm going to mention now, because, I mean, that's a kind of a memo to each and every one of us to be able to try to do that. It may be hard to do, but the idea is not so hard. The thing I find more troubling has been the gradual death of truth in the public square. And I think that this is really subversive of a common good and a common canon. And what I mean by this, it wasn't just what we saw in the White House over the last number of years, which is a big flashing light about, you know, kind of truth alert, truth alert, truth alert. Right. The road to the death of truth in the public square leads through the academy and through the media to Washington, D.C. It doesn't start in Washington, D.C. I mean, 
in the academy nowadays, we have history departments that are poisoned with the idea that there really is no such thing as truth. They're just these competing, contending narratives. And the whole relativization of, with quotations around it, truth, is absolutely pernicious. And we've seen that same notion infest the media, where you get to find your own balkanized camp, where you get your opinion spat back to you with no kind of contending alternative opinion. And not just from Washington, but from the intellectual elite in the United States, we've had this assault on the very concept of truth. And our democracy doesn't need a very high standard of living to function. We had pretty low standards of living in the 18th and 19th century, but it really does need standards of truth to function. And I don't know how we repair that. I think we will, but it, I think it's a big problem for us now. Given the breakdown of the old media model, advertising, sustaining yeah. print, yeah television ratings being such that they could command high ad rates. Sure. You're now in a digital age, and the fastest way to get your clicks up is to tell people what they already believe or reinforce what they think already. I've thought a lot about how that might break, and for the life of me, I can't get there. I mean, you and I, when we were in college, read the New York Times, and you know, we presumed that it was factual, it was not narrative. I remember one day I was with Jill Abramson up at Harvard, and she threw the front page of the New York Times at me and said, there are six anti-Trump stories on the front page, which is all about feeding, obviously, the digital beast. Do you see any way that breaks, or is it just we collectively as a people say, you know what, enough of narratives, let's go back to truth? Well, I think you need some brave people, and you know maybe they have to see themselves as sacrificial victims. I mean, you mentioned a friend, Jill Abramson. I mean, a person who immediately comes to mind is somebody like Barry Weiss, who was run out of the New York Times for committing truth. I don't think this will change just by everybody saying, oh, tut, tut, isn't this terrible? Right. Probably people have to take a stand, and some people may be penalized or suffer for their stance for honesty. To use an infelicitous phrase, it's going to Truth is going to die in the darkness if some people don't stand up for it and aren't willing to fight for it. Moving along to your most recent piece at Foreign Affairs, you describe demographic trends and you say, in point of fact, the U.S. is in a relatively strong position demographically when compared to other nations such as China and Russia. I wonder if you walk our listeners through your observations and argument. Well, Relative is the important term there, because if you remember the words of the uh, great demographer Waylon Jennings, <laughs> if you think I look bad, you should have seen the other guy, right? So <laughs> right. I'm not being a cheerleader for things which are going on in the United States right now. I just set my bona fides by what I've described to you over uh, the last few minutes. But we live in a competitive world with real-life competitors rather than ideal ones. And to the extent that demographics matters in the friendly or unfriendly competition between countries, the United States was and still is relatively favorably poised. 
And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's just the question of scale, which matters in the world arena. I mean, there are two giants, there are China and India. One of them will be the largest, one of them will be the second largest. There's no close third, but we are third. And we are by far the largest population of an affluent society with all of the capabilities that affluent societies command. We're almost three times as populous as the next largest affluent society, which would be Japan, with four times as populous as Germany. This gives us a lot of scope in the international community. America had curious and, I would say, exceptional demographic characteristics before and right after the end of the Cold War. I mean, we know that Americans are odd because they have too many Bibles and send too many people to jail and they, you know, have too many guns and they eat too much. But they also have too many babies for a rich country, or at least they did until very recently. We were the country that had more or less replacement level childbearing. And others, of course, were uh, on average much below that. Well, from the Great Recession to now, America's childbearing patterns have been on a slide. Our fertility trends have been going down. And if you take the new numbers that came in from last year and the numbers from the 2020 census, U.S. is probably about 22% below what we'd need for replacement childbearing at the moment. But, wow. uh, but that's a funny year. I mean, 2020 is a funny year. But, but we're down below. Even with below replacement fertility, the United States is on track to continue to increase its population, to increase its working age population, to go gray much more moderately or more slowly than competitor countries. And to the extent that those sorts of numbers matter in international relations, the United States would be relatively better placed. Nick, thank you very much for doing this podcast with us today. And for our listeners, the two essays that were referenced in this podcast, the first one was published in Commentary Magazine. It was still the most widely read essay ever published in Commentary Magazine. And if you Google our miserable 21st century Commentary Magazine, it'll pop right up. Nick's most recent piece is in Foreign Affairs magazine. It's at the website, foreignaffairs.com. Both are fantastic reads, and I urge you to check them out. Thanks again, Nick. John, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We will talk, I hope, again. More frequently than in the past few decades. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Good to talk with you, John. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. We're going to take a little break for the Memorial Day weekend, so we won't be back until next Tuesday. But on that day, we're going to run my interview with Shannon O'Neill from the Council on Foreign Relations about all things Latin America and specifically Mexico. After that, my co-host Rebecca and I will resume our analysis of the news. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Rossell, Pierre Bianame, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. 
Our engineer is Tom Stewart. We'll see you after the break. <laughs> 